Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 344. Today's big Bible question, what does it mean to test the spirits? Well, happy Saturday to you, dear friends. Welcome aboard to new listeners from Austin, Texas, Assam, India, the Philippines, Dusseldorf, Germany, or at least the Westphalia area, McCalla, Ecuador, Los Angeles, Abilene, Sweetwater, Texas, and Charlotte, North Carolina. Thank you all for joining in. We begin today's readings with 1 Chronicles 5 and 6, then to Nahum chapter 3, Luke 19, and our focus passage in 1 John 4. In this chapter, John tells us to do something that really seems quite mysterious at first glance, and I'd wager that the vast majority of modern Christians, upon first encountering this passage, kind of scratch their heads and wonder if we're literally supposed to be talking to, interacting with, and testing the theology of spiritual beings. Now, I don't know about you, but I have rather infrequent opportunities in my life to quiz and test spirits about their beliefs in Jesus. So let's read First John chapter 4 and then discuss what it is that John is commanding us to do in the Word of God today. First John chapter 4 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, even now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. So honestly, the language that John uses here is a bit perplexing at first. 
I want to be very careful when interacting with Bible passages of this type because my fear is that pastors and Bible scholars alike too often rationalize the Bible. And I mean that literally. Sometimes we take Bible passages that are difficult or hard to understand, or like in this case, very spiritual, and we give them a bit more of a rational explanation that makes a lot more sense to humans in a modern and scientific age. I want to avoid that at all costs. Thus, I'm going to share with you what I think this Bible passage means, but I say it with a tiny bit of fear and trembling because honestly, I don't want to miss it. It could be very well that John is here talking about interacting with spirits on their own or spirits speaking through somebody in some way that I and most Westerners just don't quite understand. In fact, I do think it's sort of the latter. He's talking about interacting with the Spirit, speaking through somebody, although I don't know that we're called to actually speak to those spirits that are speaking through somebody. Hopefully, that'll make sense in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, This is one of those passages without an absolute clear parallel elsewhere in the Bible, so we must be humble. Now, that said, I do believe we can quite clearly understand what John is saying to us here, and I believe that there are other Bible passages, though not exact parallels, that do shed a lot of light on this. We do not first interpret the Word of God via our rationality or our logic or our feelings or our experience, but we always interpret the Word of God first and foremost by the Word of God. Here in this passage, John is warning us about spirits who are not confessing that Jesus has come in the flesh. We could go into a lot of deep theological depths speaking about the error that's being taught about here along the lines of Gnosticism, but that's a little beyond our scope for today. We're going to just mainly focus on what it means to test the spirits. In this instance, I believe John gives us indication that he's not talking about testing a standalone spirit, so to speak, but he is talking about a spirit speaking through a person, or at the very least, somehow influencing what they are saying and teaching about. Now, the Bible is, maybe surprisingly to you, quite clear that the Holy Spirit speaks through people. We see it very clearly in a passage we just read a few days ago, Second Peter 1.21, where Peter writes, No prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. David, uh, King David, in his last words before he died, which are recorded in 2 Samuel 23, 2, says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. Luke 170, he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Acts 116, brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Acts 3.18, in this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Acts 6.10, talking about Stephen the deacon, they, his opponents, were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. 1 Corinthians 12.3, Paul writes, therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the spirit of God says Jesus is cursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Finally, 1 Peter 1.11, they inquired into what time or circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So the universal testimony of the Bible is that God the Holy Spirit speaks through people. 
it would appear from this passage and other passages that other spirits, unclean spirits, demonic spirits most likely, can also speak through people. We, of course, see this dynamic uh, more than once in the ministry of Jesus. Mark 5, 9 through 10, for instance, uh, what is your name? Jesus asked the demon-possessed man. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. So what is that? That's an unclean demonic spirit speaking through a human being and apparently having a conversation with Jesus. So the Holy Spirit and other spirits can speak through people. This seems to be indisputable from a biblical perspective that John is talking about spirits speaking through people seems quite evident based on what we see in verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets, human prophets, have gone out into the world. Why are we testing spirits? Because false human prophets are in the world wrecking havoc. And some are probably just charlatans making up as they go, of course, but some apparently are also speaking somehow, some way, empowered by unclean spirits. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15, also warns us about false speakers uh, in the same way. He calls them false apostles here, and he says, Such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. Paul, like John, also encourages us to test things in this really a very similar, if not exactly similar, circumstance in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-22. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Now, I believe this is a parallel to what John is saying. Both uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 and uh, 1 John 4 are in the context of prophecy, and both are referring to obviously spiritual activity. Both mention spirit. Paul is saying to not despise words of prophecy, but to test them. And I believe John is saying the exact same thing. So how do we test these spirits? How do we test words of prophecy? Well, we test them by how they line up with the word of God, just like the noble Bereans did in Acts 17. We also see an example of this in 1 Corinthians 14, which makes mention of the spirits of the prophets, seemingly indicating that a prophet or a person that claims to be a prophet can either have God's Holy Spirit or another misleading spirit. 1 Corinthians 14, 29-33 says two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So that's a fascinating passage. We could talk about it for a long time. One thing it tells us is if somebody stands up in church and starts saying something or whatever, and they're out of order, and they say, well, I'm sorry, I can't control it. Well, actually, 1 Corinthians 14.32, the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets. Yes, you can. You can control that, so there's no need for outbursts, as Paul says in this passage that's very charismatic, very much about gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. He says uh, that 
all things should be done decently and in order. And so God has, allows that the prophet would have control over what he says. I also should point out in this very same passage, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, probably the densest and uh, longest teaching in the Bible on spiritual gifts, Paul says that there is a gift of distinguishing between spirits. And I believe the primary way we, quote, test the spirits is by lining up what is said by a person especially a prophetic person with the word of God, but it is conceivable and very possible that this gift of distinguishing spirits is also a supernatural gift that enables the person who has it to tell the difference whether somebody is speaking of the Holy Spirit uh, or not the Holy Spirit. And you might say, well, how come you don't know whether or not that's the case? Well, because as far as I know, the only time the gift of distinguishing between spirits is mentioned in the Bible is this passage in 1 Corinthians, and not much is said about it. And a lot of time, even some modern translations of the Bible translate that phrase as discernment, sort of uh, making an interpretive call. This is what this means. Distinguishing between spirits means discernment, but I'm not actually sure we should do that. I'm not actually 100% sure that distinguishing between spirits means what modern humans, for instance, mean by the word discernment. Nevertheless, uh, that is a potential spiritual gift that might come to bear on this question, but it's not described very much in scripture, so I want to be careful about going too far with it. Now, let's turn to our friend, theologian Gary Burge, who will help us understand this text quite well, and also kind of give us two options for what exactly John means here. And honestly, I think the answer could even be that he means both of these options. So this is what Dr. Burge says. This passage in 1 John 4 is the only time the Greek word for testing, which is dokimatso, occurs in the Johannine literature, although it occurs often in the New Testament, 22 times. It appears in Paul's letters when he challenges churches to assess the validity of irregular teachings in 1 Thessalonians 5, which we read, and 1 T Timothy 3.10. Testing the spirits may refer to a spiritual apprehension, such as Paul's understanding of the discernment or distinguishing between spirits we see in 1 Corinthians 12.10. In this case, John would have in mind charismatic leaders in the congregation who spiritually intuited the authenticity of these prophets' lives, just as Jesus could see the spiritual bonds of a person before a deliverance, that is, spirits seeing spirits, so the Spirit of God would equip Johannan believers to recognize God's Spirit in others. On the other hand, John's thoughts may be nothing more mysterious than weighing objectively what was being said by these prophets, objectively as in measuring by the Word of God. Perhaps this engaged different gifts in the Johannan church, elders, teachers, and leaders with wisdom and knowledge of the word who could weigh what was said and compare it with what had been taught previously. But what should one test for? The Spirit of God always glorifies the Son of God. Thus, the first test centers entirely on one's view of Jesus Christ. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has, that has come in the flesh is of God, says verse 3. And we see earlier in 1 John 2, 18-22, as well as 1 John 1, 1-4, how incarnational Christology was at the heart of this community's struggles. In other words, the teaching that Jesus actually came as 100% human and 100% God. 
Behind these words, John is urging three things about our belief in Jesus. Number one, that the man of Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the divine word with a capital W of God. Number two, that Jesus Christ was and is fully divine as well as fully human. And that Jesus is the sole source of eternal life since he alone reveals the Father to us and atones for our sins. John sees this confession as central to Christian discipleship. If Jesus, the man from Nazareth, were not our divine Lord, his sacrifice on the cross would have limited importance. If he were not divine, we would have little confidence that the Father has been revealed to us. The nature of discipleship would likewise be placed in question. Our human lives, our ethics are important because God has deemed our humanity important through the incarnation of of his Son. So somebody comes along and speaking prophetically speaks something that does not line up with the clear teaching of the Bible. We can be quite sure by testing the spirit that they're speaking through that they are not speaking the truth. So I just want to put this to you, friends. We do have this command to test the spirits. I believe primarily this refers to weighing what is said by the word of God. And I believe it's very possible, as Dr. Burge has pointed to us to, that this might also have to do with the gift of distinguishing of spirits, which we might talk about at a later time. But uh, you can research for yourself by reading 1 Corinthians 12. Well, let's continue. We'll go to 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. So all the work Solomon did for the Lord's temple was completed. Then Solomon brought the consecrated things of his father David, the silver, the gold, and all the utensils, and put them in the treasuries of God's temple. At that time, Solomon assembled at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the tribal heads, the ancestral chiefs of the Israelites, in order to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, that is Zion. So all the men of Israel were assembled in the king's presence at the festival, and this was in the seventh month. All the elders of Israel came, and the Levites picked up the ark. They brought up the ark, the tent of meeting, and the holy utensils that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. King Solomon, the entire congregation of Israel, who had gathered around him, were in front of the ark, sacrificing sheep, goats, and cattle that could not be counted or numbered because there were so many. The priests brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place beneath the wings of the cherubim. And the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark so that the cherubim formed a cover above the Ark and its poles. The poles were so long that their ends were seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they were not seen from outside. They are still there today. Nothing was in the Ark except the two tablets that Moses had put in it at Horeb, where the Lord had made a covenant with the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. Now, all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. When the priests came out of the holy place, the Levitical singers dressed in fine linen and carrying cymbals, harps, and lyres were standing east of the altar, and with them were 120 priests blowing trumpets. The Levitical singers were descendants of Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthon, and their sons and relatives. The trumpeters and singers joined together to praise and thank the Lord with one voice. They raised their voices accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and musical instruments in praise to the Lord. For he is good, his faithful love endures forever. The temple, the Lord's temple, was filled with a cloud. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of the Lord filled God's temple. Amen and hallelujah. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then Solomon said, The Lord said he would dwell in total darkness, but I have built an exalted temple for you, a place for your dwelling forever. Then the king turned and blessed the entire congregation of Israel while they were standing, and he said, 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He spoke directly to my father David, and he has fulfilled the promise by his power. He said, since the day I brought my people Israel out of the land of Egypt, I have not chosen a city to build a temple in among any of the tribes of Israel so that my name would be there. And I have not chosen a man to be ruler over my people Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem so that my name will be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. My father David had his heart set on building a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. However, the Lord said to my father David, Since it was your desire to build a temple in my name, you have done well to have this desire, yet you are not the one to build the temple, but your son, your own offspring, offspring, will build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled what he promised. I have taken the place of my father David, and I sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I have put the ark there where the Lord's covenant is that he made with the Israelites. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire congregation of Israel and spread out his hands. For Solomon had made a bronze platform seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet high, and put it in the court. He stood on it, knelt down in front of the entire congregation of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth who keeps his gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you. With all their heart, you have kept what you promised to your servant, my father David. You spoke directly to him, and you fulfilled your promise by your power. As it is today, therefore, Lord God of Israel, keep what you promised to your servant, my father David. You will never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons take care to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, Lord God of Israel, please confirm what you promised to your servant David. But will God indeed live on earth with humans? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. Listen to your servant's prayer and his petition, Lord my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you, so that your eyes watch over this temple day and night toward the place where you said you would put your name, and so that you may hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the petitions of your servant and your people Israel which they pray toward this place. May you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. May you hear and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and he comes to take an oath before your altar in this temple, may you hear in heaven and act. May you judge your servants, condemning the wicked man by bringing what he has done on down on his own head and providing justice for the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. If your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and they return to you and praise your name for the, and they pray and plead for mercy before you in this temple, may you hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel. May you restore them to the land you gave them and their ancestors when the skies are shut and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray toward this place and praise your name and they turn from their sins because you are afflicting them. May you hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel so that you may teach them the good way they should walk in. May you send rain on your land that you gave your people for an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, when there is pestilence, when there is blight and mildew, locust or grasshopper, when their enemies besiege them in the land and its cities, when there is any plague or illness, every prayer or petition that any person or that all your people Israel may have, they each know their own affliction and suffering as they spread out their hands towards this temple. May you hear in heaven your dwelling place, and may you forgive and give to everyone according to all their ways, since you know each heart, for you alone know the human heart, so that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days they live on the land. 
you gave our ancestors, even for the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your strong hand and outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this temple, may you hear in heaven in your dwelling place and do all the foreigner asks you, then all the peoples of the earth will know your name, to fear you as your people Israel do, and though this temple I have built bears your name. When your people go out to fight against their enemies, wherever you send them and they pray to you in the direction of this city you have chosen and the temple that I have built for your name, may you hear their prayer and petition in heaven and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin and you are angry with them and hand them over to the enemy and their captors deport them to a distant or nearby country. And when they come to their senses in the land where they were deported and repent and petition you in their captor's land, saying, we've sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked. And when they return to you with all their mind and all their heart in the land of the captivity where they were taken captive, and when they pray in the direction of their land that you gave their ancestors in the city you have chosen and toward the temple I have built for your name, may you hear their prayer and petitions in heaven your dwelling place, and uphold their cause. May you forgive your people who sinned against you. Now, my God, please let your ears be open and your your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. Now, therefore, arise, Lord God, come to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. May your priests, Lord God, be clothed with salvation and may your faithful people rejoice in goodness. Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember your servant David's acts of love. Amen. Nahum chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and jolting chariot, charging horsemen, flashing swords, shining spears, heaps of slain, mounds of corpses, dead bodies within. They stumble over their dead because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery who treats nations and clans like merchandise by her prostitution and sorcery. I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will lift your skirts over your face and display your nakedness to nations, your shame to kingdoms. I will throw filth on you and treat you with contempt. I will make a spectacle of you. Then all who see you will recoil from you, saying, Nineveh is devastated. Who will show sympathy to her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? Are you better than Thebes that sat along the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, the river her wall? Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength. Put in Libya were among her allies, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were also dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and all her nobles were bound in chains. You also will become drunk. You will hide. You also will seek refuge from the enemy." All your fortresses are fig trees with figs that ripen first. When shaken, they fall right into the mouth of the eater. Look, your troops are like women among you. Your land city gates are wide open to your enemies. Fire will devour the bars of your gates. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your fortresses. Step into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. The fire will devour you there. The sword will cut you down. It will devour you like young locust. Like the young locust, multiply yourselves like the young locust. Multiply like the swarming locust. You have made your merchants more numerous than the stars of the sky. The young locust strips the land and flies away. Your court officials are like the swarming locust and your scribes like clouds of locusts which settle on the walls on a cold day. When the sun rises, they take off and no one knows where they are. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep, your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. 
There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain, He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half my possessions to the poor Lord, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Therefore, he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. He called ten of his servants, gave them ten minas, and told them, engage in business until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned ten more minas. Well done, good servant, he told him, because you've been faithful in a very small matter. Have authority over ten towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, You will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. I've kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since you are a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. And he told him, I will condemn you by what you said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, and from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine who do not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem As he was approaching Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to him, Why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. 
They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling, and he said, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. Amen. Well, friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May it be a wonderful weekend. May he keep you safe and guide you in his wisdom. Good day to you and Godspeed.